0: Ownership is conceptual, absolutely conceptual, and there are cultures on the planet that do not understand what ownership is. It's part of the issue that's going on in China is they're kind trying to come to grips with what does it mean when you own something. We have a series of laws in place in the United States that say this is what it means when you own something. A lot of those laws don't exist in China. Once more onto the breach, dear friend. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach where we may say things like dispersion strategy. Just for the fun of it. Yeah. Because we know how interesting that is to everyone.
1: And good news, bad news.
0: Yes. We have another question from Inquisitor John. Good news, bad news. Everyone says that Wall Street hates uncertainty you guys say that bad news is good for the market isn't bad news uncertainty no actually news is the op so what is uncertainty if nobody knows what the gdp of china is or what the earnings of a company in China are, or if you doubt the integrity of the auditing firm of that company. That's uncertainty. If you have an audit that you don't doubt, that's not uncertainty. If bad news comes out and says earnings are down, or GDP is down, at least it's knowledge. If you think back to Arthur Anderson and Enron, uh, and them together saying yes we're making a lot of money by charging ourselves interest on loans that we charged that we made from ourselves to ourselves uh, and that's all profit. Uh, well once the news came out that that's what they were considering profit, um, the uncertainty over what they actually had as profit was so big that it changed the entire market. Uncertainty is lack of knowledge. Bad news, good news is actually better than no news or, false news there. How's that? You have something to add to that?
1: Well, no, I've got a different subject. Oh, actually be right. Bad news. Bad news is not uncertainty. It's near. If, if you have an absolute bad news, like the job market or whatever, uh, and it's reported as a fact, that's not uncertainty. However, the fact that the, the uncertainty that wall street doesn't like is what is the fed going to do? How high are they going to raise rates and will it cause a recession? And that's uncertainty. We, none, none of us like that uncertainty very much, but it's the nature of the future. It's always uncertain. Okay. Yeah, I have something I'd like to say. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal by Jason Sweet that I normally like the intelligent investor, and he normally has good things to say, and I enjoy reading it. But the one on Friday, I think it was, I'm not sure what he was smoking when he wrote that article. Well, but it's important to be aware of it.
0: I want to hear about it. Anything that, that an economist was smoking something while writing is worth reading well
1: he it's a picture of a man kicking a door shut that has skeletons in the closet and he said oh yeah what you don't know about your financial advisor i read Um, that one too and the point is it's very clear that he doesn't that in that article at least he didn't delineate between a financial advisor and an investment advisor and i think people don't know the difference he was assuming that financial advisors are regulated by the SEC and required to be regulated directly by the SEC and are required to be fiduciaries. No, they're not. Financial advisors are securities salespeople. They're often, when they call themselves security uh, financial advisors, securities and insurance salespeople. They're commissioned. They uh, work for a company. They're not working for you, their client. And they may talk about best interest and things like that, but in fact, As an employee, they have a decidedly divided interest. Uh, When I say divided interest, and a huge conflict of interest in that they work for a company that gets paid to sell securities. And if they don't do what their employers need them to do to make money for their employers, then they're not going to work there real long. I mean, that's just the nature of working for a company. An investment advisor is a very different thing from a financial advisor. And some financial advisors, by the way, are part-time investment advisors. And the problem there is, the investment advisory firm they're also also working for, is it's nearly impossible to tell when they're being an investment advisor and when they're being a financial advisor. And again, when they're a financial advisor, they're busy selling you something. So let's back up.
0: So number one, most people don't know the difference between an investment advisor and a financial advisor. And then number two, it's very difficult to tell when the difference is being utilized by the person that's either one or the other or both. And
1: I can say with a a great deal of confidence, having been all around those universes, if you are working with an independent investment advisory firm that is not also a broker-dealer, now that sounds complicated, but it's important to recognize that if you're working with a firm who and receiving investment advice that is, quote, only, end quote. They don't receive commissions. They're not being paid by the by the product companies that they're recommending to you. You can be fairly confident that you're getting in you're, you're getting fiduciary financial investment advice. If you're working, if you're working with a person who is with any of the major broker dealers, whatever they may call themselves, whether it be Merrill Lynch or Edward Jones or someplace else, There's nothing wrong with being a broker. There's nothing wrong with being a salesperson. And there's nothing wrong with working with a salesperson. But it's really important to recognize that the person you're working with is compensated by what they sell you. They're not compensated by you paying them directly. If you're paying them directly, if you see money coming out of your account to pay your investment advisor, or if you're writing a check to your investment advisor, and they have said in writing, nobody else is paying them. Just you, then they are your employee effectively, and they're working in your best interest. And his article that was hammering investment advisors and confusing them with investment, hammering financial advisors and confusing them with investment advisors becomes an inaccurate statement. Yeah. Matter of fact, one of the things he was talking about is how FINRA jumped all over a financial advisor who supposedly was an invest. He didn't say it, who supposedly was a fiduciary. Yeah, well, FINRA is the organization. That, re- that regulates the sales of securities by broker-dealers. So I just wanted to point out, it, it's really important. If you have enough money that you're going to depend on it in the future, it's worth paying an independent, qualified, and I say qualified, meaning they have certifications and qualifications, investment advisory firm or person to assist you. And I firmly believe that.
0: Uh, just to add to that, uh, in this article in the Wall Street Journal, and the, the article is labeled, you don't know what you don't know about your financial advisor. He does go into some details about fiduciary, investment advisor folk. And he says, wait a minute, we've got one disclosure document that says there's no disciplinary history, and the uh, another disclosure document that says there is for the same institution. Yes. And my answer to that directly, as clearly as I can possibly say it, is ask about it. Talk to the person involved and say, what is this? What does it mean? It's an uncomfortable question because um, there's something called a form ADV that's filed every year by the investment advisory firm that says what's happening. Um, And on that one, you've got things like, was the disciplinary history more than 10 years before? Well, you don't have to talk about that. Um, was it, were there findings against the advisor or was it thrown out? Well, you don't have to talk about the thrown out ones. Then there's something called a form CRS that says everything that's ever happened. You must answer. Yes, you've had a disciplinary something, even if it was not found against you. And let, let me kind of come at this from a different direction. The wall street journal has been doing a fantastic job of shining a light on insider trading by Congress and on um, uh, federal judges doing rulings on companies that they own parts of. They own stock in that company. And there are rules on the book that says they're supposed to recuse themselves. And so the Wall Street Journal has been digging into this. This area of investment advisory, fiduciary or sales, doesn't matter. It needs to be more transparent. The difficulty is that FINRA and the SEC have their hands tied. One of the largest lobbying groups in, of any lobbying group is the financial industry log- lobbying groups. There are, there's so much money that comes from investment banks, broker-dealers, investment advisory firms to Congress that uh, it's very difficult for Congress to do anything negative uh, toward any, So what you get is this kind of spotty and confusing thing. When people say, yes, I have regulatory history, but no, I don't have regulatory history. Ask. Read those documents. If there's discrepancies, ask them about it. This is as important a thing as I can get across understanding your relationship with your investment advisor and your financial advisor falls firmly in your lap. As a fiduciary, they're supposed to give you full disclosure, but the disclosure guidelines are even confusing. So there, that's my end of that. I, I agree that the article wasn't as educated as it needs to be, but there's a real problem in there in that it's really hard to tell what's going on with your investment or financial advisor unless you already are one.
1: There's a bottom line to this, though. Ask if your financial advisor or your investment advisor will advise you on a fiduciary basis and put it in writing and have no conflicts of interest, except those they disclose to you in writing formally and verbally. If they'll say yes and they'll put it in writing, you're probably working with the right people. If they say, no, we can't do that, you're probably not working with the
0: right people. Agreed. I think you know, we kind of get lost in the woods when it comes to the details. There, that's the 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 big conceptual concept that you got to grab. I had another subject I wanted to talk about, is and that's inflation, which seems to what? be central to people's minds. Why do we want to talk about that? Nobody cares
1: about <laughs> inflation. Psh and some misapprehensions about inflation. There is seems to be a belief that if the Federal Reserve had acted sooner, they could have damped out this surge of inflation. And they, I've read again and again and again, they're behind the power curve. They're not. So let's just say that the Federal Reserve would have known somehow mysteriously that between May 2020 and June 2022, energy prices would rise by 85%. Let's say they knew that was coming. They knew Russia was going to invade Ukraine. First off, they should have told Ukraine. But let's just say they did. <laughs> right. What they would have had to do is cut the, America, the total United States economy, throw us into a recession by causing our GDP to drop 10% to offset the rise in gasoline and fuel prices to prevent inflation from running out of control. I don't think that would have been a good solution, even if they had known it was coming. I don't think anybody would have wanted them to do that. So they couldn't do that. There's another thing. There is another, there's a firmly held belief that I've encountered again and again and again that it's excessive demand that is causing inflation. Too much money being spent, the, the stimulus programs, all three of them, or if you're a Republican, the third one, or if you're a Democrat, the first two or whatever, put too much money in people's pockets. Here's an interesting fact. Our demand in the United States, the stuff and services we are buying still has not quite recovered to the level it was before the pandemic. Let me say that again. Our spending in the economy as consumers and everything else is not quite recovered to where it was before the pandemic. So we don't, we are not generating more demand in the economy than we were when inflation was having trouble getting to 2%. It's not excessive demand that's causing inflation. There's just no way that you can attribute excessive demand when the demand is now lower than it was before the pandemic and when we didn't have inflation. What we do have is a substantial reduction in supply. We just, and it's, it boils down to two major issues. One, Ukraine got invaded and the stuff that was coming out of Ukraine and the stuff that was coming out of Russia has been curtailed, which reduces supply. When I say stuff, that includes wheat and uh, oils that we cook with and oil that we burn as petroleum in the world and so on. So the prices went up dramatically. The other major factor that is generating inflation right now is COVID in China, which is a really interesting subject by itself. The rest of the world has kind of passed it on by and we're still churning along. China is still being crippled by COVID, and if they invented it, as people have claimed, and it was a bad thing done by China, they certainly weren't ready for what they invented and started in their own country. Spreading yeah.
0: the damage uh, to their economy at this point is higher than the damage to any other economy by far, by far. And There's the, the comparison is man, it's hard. Di- you can't even put them on the same graph.
1: And their de facto dictator, Chairman Xi continues to insist that the way to control COVID is to shut down entire sectors of their economy, entire geographic areas, and allow nobody to go anywhere, buy food, go to work, come home from work, or do anything else. That has dramatically restricted supply. And if you think, well, how, and people still ask me, how does that restrict supply in the United States? I just tell them the biggest retailer, brick and mortar retailer that you find in the United States is Walmart. Go to Walmart and look through the goods at Walmart and tell me how much of it is made in China. And you instantly get the picture. A lot of the things that we want to buy as our economy has recovered, and we have the same amount, we're spending, still spending less money than we were before the pandemic. But the things we were buying before the pandemic and the things we're buying right now are largely made someplace else. And it takes a long time to shift From being made in china to being made in india or mexico and then the next question obviously comes up why can't we make it in the united states we don't have enough workers in the united states to fill the jobs that are open now you move a bunch of quote jobs back to the united states at this point there's not going to be anybody to take those jobs we've done a really good job of shrinking our labor force because admittedly in the past a lot of our labor force was illegal immigrants we have done a pretty good job of getting them out, of, not intentionally, by the way, we cannot, the economy did it, COVID did it, but there just aren't as many people available to do work in the United States as there were before the pandemic.
0: And automation. As a result automation will be what we use to Eventually. bridge the gap but it's not there yet it's it's right. getting close i mean there's a lot of automation that's being added but we have a, a lot more to do sure. on the automation front before we can just bring all the jobs back home it's it's very convenient
1: to blame depending on which political party you're in blame the president from the other party for inflation at this point it ain't either one of their faults what they did both of them was prevent a pandemic from generating a depression.
0: Yeah, And
1: And I commend both parties for, for, for the stimulus bills. Were they larger or smaller than they should have been? Were they too large? And with 2020 hindsight, we can go back and examine that under a microscope and try to figure it out. Nobody has so far, by the way, officially. But the fact is they prevented something horrible from happening. And, and I think both parties and both presidents should be committed for that. Yeah. All right. Let me, I got a, we got a question from Steve. Uh, I did. I know he sent it to me. He said, um, we were talking about the I-bond, and I sent some information on the I-bond, which, by the way, does not change in value uh, because it's not sold on the open market. The in Treasury inflation, the I-series savings bonds. Savings bonds are not sold on the open market, so they don't rise and fall. But he wanted to know how bond funds lose money. He said, I thought they were debt securities that paid interest on to the holder. I have the same question for money market funds. I noticed in my statement, both had lost value. A money market fund should not lose value. It's a dollar fund. If you're in a money market fund, the only way it loses value is if you take money out. Now, well, it's look, not-
0: Just a second, because there are some things that have been said were just like money market funds or were similar or were mm-hmm. dollar backed or whatever. Those are sometimes called stable funds. They're sometimes- backed by crypto, those are That's not, going say. we don't call those money market funds. Those are things and, that are other than money. Right.
1: Money market fund, whether it's, it, it is stuck to the dollar. And there's been some regulations put in effect that cause money market mutual funds to be far more conservative if they're going to say they're a money market fund. Now, but why do bonds lose money when interest rates go up? And the easiest way to understand it, I'm going to use some exaggerated interest, interest rates here that we haven't seen in a long, long time, and I hope we never do see, but it's simple to do it that way. A bond is $1,000. That's a standard bond. So you got got $1,000, and let's say you buy a bond, and, and, a, and a bond fund has a portfolio of bonds, so they move up and down. Uh, you buy a bond for a thousand dollars at five percent and let's put its maturity way out in the future someplace so we don't have to worry about the complexities of yields maturity. So let's just talk about the fact that you're getting fifty dollars a year. You, you loaned a thousand dollars to some organization, whether it be the treasury or the school district or a corporation or whatever. You loaned them a thousand dollars. They're going to pay you fifty dollars a year interest. That's five percent. Let's say interest rates go to ten percent, which I, recognize that longer term interest rates probably will in this cycle or get close to it. So let's say they go to 10% and they were at 5%. Now, if somebody wants to buy, if they go buy a thousand dollar bond, they get a hundred dollars a year and you decide you want to sell your 5% bond on the open market, but it's only paying $50 a year. Again, this is a little overly simplified, but the bottom line to it is in a very simplistic way your 5% bond is now worth $500 on the open market because if somebody pays $500 to you they get $100 a year are they get no they they get they get the 5% but then it, it boils down to the fact that since your bond that you bought at 5% is only paying 5% $50 a year it's lost half its value because somebody can go loan $1000 to the same organization at 10% a year and get $100. So it's going to take two of your $1000 bonds to give a person $100, which means guess what? Your bond is now worth $500. And that's really the way bonds work. Now it's a little more complex because if somebody buys your bond, your $1000 bond for $500, at some point in the future they're going to get $1000 back from the people they loaned it to unless they default. On a treasury bond you don't have to worry about that. So that raises it that raises the value a little bit. But the bottom line to it is When interest rates go up, the value of market-traded bonds go down. That is immutable. When interest rates go down, the value of market-traded bonds go up. And this is an interesting factor. For the last 40 years, interest rates have been consistently, with a few bumps, coming down, which meant people got very used to, over the last 40 years, that when you bought bonds in the secondary market, which is where most people buy their bonds, and you held them for a while, the underlying value of the bond would rise over time. And they just got used to the fact over 40 years that if you buy bonds, the underlying principal value goes up and you get interest. What a deal. Well, something changed and we're headed the other direction now. So now when you buy a bond, if you bought a bond in the last year or owned bonds over the last year, you've seen the underlying principal value fall. And that's probably what we're going to see for the near future.
0: Yeah. In a perfect world, you wouldn't see losses in a bond fund. But when interest rates go up, because if you're just going to hold them, just hold them till maturity and you'll get your money back, presuming they don't default. Um, So why why is the price going down? Well, here's why. You're pooling your money with other people's money to buy more bonds, which gives you some abatement of risk and that you can buy a lot more bonds from a lot more institutions rather than just one bond from one place. There's risk in that. The problem is that if... Someone else that holds that bond fund decides they want to buy a fishing boat. They want to buy a bass boat. So they take a withdrawal from the bond fund while interest rates are going up. Well, then the manager of that fund has to sell something to give that money to the person that wants the bass boat. Well, if interest rates are going up, they've got to sell it before it's matured. They may not have enough maturing in any given month to bring up enough cash for enough people buying enough bass boats. So they've got to sell at a loss a bond to produce the money. And that's one of the offsets to the risk abatement by having more than one issuer for your bonds. Uh, You now also have other people that may wish to liquidate before you do, so you don't get the maturity value necessarily. So in a perfect world, if everybody was just holding it and nobody defaulted, you wouldn't see the prices go down. Uh, This is is fantastic because it really comes down to what is ownership and how do you price Mm. it? Because if you have a house, why should a house's value change? You own the house, you live in the house. It's a good house, you're keeping it up to date. Your internal value of the house that you're living in probably hasn't changed. It's still the same house. You're still at the same comfort level. If you added something to the house, maybe it's a little bit better. But when you go to the market, it's everybody else's opinion of the house and other houses that are like it that changes the value of the house. Now, if you're just living in it, you're not thinking about selling, it's irrelevant to you what other people believe your ownership in your house is worth until you want to borrow money on it or sell it. So ownership, so long as it's private, so if you think Elon Musk and SpaceX, what is the value of SpaceX? I don't know. Most people don't know. We can put a weird estimate on it based on unknown information and say it's worth X amount of money, but the reality is that that's irrelevant so long as it's not being sold or a big loan being sought on it. Because the value of it is really based on what the person that owns it wants to use it for. Ownership is conceptual, absolutely conceptual. And there are cultures on the planet that do not understand what ownership is. It's part of the issue that's going on in China is they're kind trying to come to grips with what does it mean when you own something. We have a series of laws in place in the United States that say this is what it means when you own something. A lot of those laws don't exist in China. What does it mean if you invented something? You've invented a a thing and you've patented it. You now own the idea for that thing. You may not have made the thing. How can this idea have a value? This idea, you own a thing that's never been made before, that no one has ever used before, and somehow it can have a value. That's called intellectual property. Ownership is weird, and the values that we place on ownership are weird as well. And as long as you look at the stock market as a bunch of stuff that we own, uh, the the concept of ownership you mentioned Walmart earlier Walmart's trying to make a profit at least we hope uh, and we hope most of these companies are trying to make a profit they purport to be there are shareholders who are saying you need to do this we own this company we get to set the people who hire and fire when people are voting their share ownership to vote in a board of directors, the board of directors gets to hire or fire the executives that get to hire and fire everybody else. So ownership gives some level of control so long as you can vote. There are types of ownership that don't even include voting rights now. The big chunk of Alphabet is non-voting right shares. You can own the company and have zero control over what it's trying to accomplish. You don't get to vote on whether or not you think it should make a profit. I think that's a little silly, but so far, they're still trying to make a profit. Just come back to the fact that your concept of what ownership is needs to be applied to the market rather than the value of the ownership. I mean, when you go to sell your house, it's important to know what the value is. If the house is accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish, you don't need more than that.
1: There's another aspect about investing in the market that I think people, some people get very clearly and a lot of people don't. When you invest in something, it is not a savings account. When you invest in something, you're buying it with the intent, hopefully, of selling it at some future point at a higher value. But that doesn't mean it will always be at a higher value in the future. And people look at the liquidity in the stock market, the fact that mutual funds and stocks and bonds in general have a high degree of liquidity that can be converted into cash very quickly. And they say, okay, I've got this much money in mutual funds in the stock market um, and I need $10,000 to fix my house or whatever. I can always go get it there. That is a very good way to do very poorly over a long period of time. Any money that you need for emergencies for home repairs, for anything immediate like that, should be held in cash in advance. That's what your cash reserves are for. And we, I, for 40 plus years, have encountered people who suddenly decide they want to do something or need to do something financially And they turn to their mutual funds or stocks or whatever they've got in the market and they say, hey, Jeff, liquidate this money. They say, send me this much money. Inevitably, down the road, they look back and they're very unhappy because they sold at a low point. Why do they sell at a low point? Very rarely, by the way, do people sell out of the market when the market is really high because they're watching the prices go up and they're very happy with that. They're watching the value, the liquidation value of their portfolio rise, and they're very happy with that. But it's amazing how when the market has fallen for several months, the value in the market has fallen for several months, and they see their statements getting lower and lower, they're very happy to sell at that point to buy a refrigerator or to fix the roof or to buy a new car or whatever they want to sell out of the market. Why? Because they're not happy with the fact that the values are going down. And this is sometimes very deeply subconscious, but they go in and say, I'm not happy with that, so sell it, and I'll take it and convert it to something I am happy with, a car or something. That is horrifically damaging to the long-term return of a portfolio. People have a strong, all humans, have a very strong tendency to buy high and sell low, which, interestingly enough, is basically why the markets rise and fall. And towards the end of a bottom, towards the bottom of a bear market, there's something called capitulation. That's when the largest quantity of selling occurs. Why? Because people are unhappy. Their statements that they read or their online values are going down. It makes them unhappy and they want to get rid of this thing that's making them unhappy and convert it to cash, which makes them happy. And in doing so, lose a tremendous amount of money, moving counterintuitively is the nature of investing. It is the nature of creating a business too, by the way. You are running a farm. You have to recognize, if you discipline yourself and say, I am going to move against my intuition, I'm going to move against my emotion, I'm going to invest, I'm going to plant, I'm going to buy when everybody else is selling, I'm going to sell when everybody else is buying. That is so hard. And it takes such discipline that relatively few people do it. But the people who do it over a long period of time tend to be what we call wealthy or financially independent. That is is so crucial and so simple. Sir
0: John Templeton said that really, really really well. He said, "Um, I believe in being a conscientious investor. When the market wishes to sell, I oblige them and I buy. And when the market wishes to buy, I oblige them and I sell. That, if it were done by everyone, would kind of be impossible because- the market is the large majority of everyone, and they wouldn't all decide to sell at the same time and to buy at the same time if they were looking at it from a long-term perspective. And This is fascinating. There are a lot of, when, when people are making a decision to sell, this is, this is my experience. Generally speaking, I have two ranges of people that will say, I wish to sell from the market. The first group has no idea what the market's doing right now. They just know that they want to do a thing that they've been planning to do for a long period of time. And that's a pretty healthy approach as long as it's a long-term plan and they've set it up with saying, we're going to be able to get access to money as opposed to ownership for this purchase and we've been planning it long-term. The other group is the people that are terrified that the market's going to go to zero or they're going to lose all their money and so they want to sell now. And that's part of the reason why the market goes down, is that people watch it go down and they go, oh, it's going down. I want to sell before it goes down more. The act of selling it causes it to go down more. There's a fantastic book uh, by a Dr. Fisher called the, Economics of uh, the Macroeconomics of Self-Fulfilling Prophecies. If you believe the market will go down and you sell your Stock portfolio. That effect is causing the market to go down, particularly if you're not alone in your belief. What does that mean? Understanding why you hold something before the market goes down is vital. We talked about this when the market was up. Know why you have what you have, there should be a purpose behind it. And you should also recognize that the market does not go up forever. It's easy to say that now in the middle of a bear market, but it's something we were saying at the top of the bowl as well, that the market does not go up forever. Be prepared for when the market drops because it's done it forever. We've had you know, a history that includes more up than down, but the down cannot be ignored. And so when I have a group of people that, kind of category of people that say, I want out of the market. If they're a client, I feel like I have done a disservice and that they should understand through education that this is not what you do in a down market. If the thing that you own is designed for long term, you don't sell it because everyone agrees that it's worthless at this moment. You understand what it's worth to you in your portfolio for the long term. If it's profitable, companies that are being discounted by the market, that's not the time to sell them, it's the time to buy them. And that's difficult for people to understand when the market is down because you look at a number and it's less than what it was and you wanna stop that lessening. That value drop is scary. If you're owning profitable companies that intend to stay profitable and you have a good expectation of them remaining profitable, who does better in the recovery from a recession? Those that own things or those that are borrowing? And the answer is pretty clear across history. Those that own things tend to do better. If you sell things because times are hard and you need the assets and they're to offset other things that you own, that makes sense. If you're selling things because you don't want to be owning while they are not worth a lot, that's how you lose money. There, I think I have... Uh, kicked that horse enough times and we're about out of time
1: this is the personal wealth coach with jeff and jake maclure uh
0: this is the personal wealth coach and we do make uh other statements than really bad puns a- about songs uh we are uh, a a finance program as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program, it's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir?
1: I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone.
0: Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing, because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable, it takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, We also (coughs) have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be, if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes.
1: The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information.
0: And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally, and portfolio management. And portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at? 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN.
1: And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades. uh, And you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.